dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially our gospel lesson from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. And as we begin, maybe a good place to start is back in our first reading from the last chapter of Isaiah. Here's Isaiah, who did not exactly have the easiest ministry. And he was called to preach to people, not only the people who wouldn't listen to him, but preach. And the result of his preaching would be that more people wouldn't listen to him. That was the whole here am I, send me, send me thing back in Isaiah chapter 6. And God had said, okay, if you're going to go, then you're going to go to a people who will continue to not listen. They will reject everything that you say. So you get to the end of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, and that's where our service kind of began today. With this beautiful description of how God's grace is so expansive that it's going to encompass people from every nation and tribe and people and language. And that the best way that he can have to describe this is camels and mules and dromedaries and horses and chariots and wagons all coming to Jerusalem. And people from north and south and east and west coming to take their place at this marriage feast. And then those last verse or two. And then they will go out and they will look on those who are being crushed. They will look on those where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And all flesh will be horrified by them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we hear that. And at least one of the, the major things that comes out. And one of the major ideas that Jesus brings out for us and these readings bring out for us is that there's only two destinations after this life. That despite what the rest of the world may think or hope, there's only two options. There's either heaven or hell, with no in-between. There's no second chance, there's no reincarnation that you're going to come back as a butterfly or as a beautiful cardinal. No. And that's where Isaiah had ended. To say that even if and even when, um, when you enter eternity, that the joy God has promised and prepared for you in heaven is so great that even if and even when you see the suffering of those who have been locked out of heaven and sent to hell, that will not diminish your joy. Because then you will experience God's holiness in all that it is. And it's not going to be terrifying to you any longer. That was kind of the the point of our second reading from the book of Hebrews. That the writer says, you haven't come to a mountain that can't be touched. And he's referring to when the the Israelites are there at Mount Sinai. And God is giving the Ten Commandments. And God had laid up all all these regulations. Don't touch the mountain. Don't even let an animal touch the mountain. And people were terrified because God's holiness isn't something to be trifled with. But he goes on. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to tens of thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new testament, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. And what we have here is this this beautiful contrast between what you and I have deserved 
and what our Lord has given. That of these two destinations of heaven and hell, that we have to realize that that hell is so incomprehensibly beyond what we would consider. That the suffering of hell is worse than you or I would ever believe. And yet, that our loving and living Lord gave his own son so that your sin and mine would be placed on him and that you and I would enjoy heaven forever and that he continues to distribute all of these blessings through his word. And that's where Jesus is going with our gospel reading from the gospel of Luke chapter 13. Earlier in the chapter, um, earlier in the chapter, he said, you know, you can't really discern how good or bad. You can't discern whether someone was a believer or not on the basis of what happened to them. That was that part where the people had asked Jesus, those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, were they worse sinners than everybody else? Or the other question, those who died when the tower fell on them, what did they do to deserve that sort of a death? And Jesus takes all of those questions and all of those comments and all of those worries and he turns them upside down. Because our standing with God is, is totally contrary to what we would naturally expect. And think about that. What we naturally expect. What we expect according to what our human heart and our human mind says. Human mind says, well, God can't expect more from me than he's given to me. And so if I come into this world sinful, well, that's not really my fault. I'll do the best with what I've got, and God should be happy with that. The human mind says that I lived a pretty good life in this world, and I'll just put in overtime when I get to eternity, and that's got to be worth something, right? The human mind and the human heart that looks for assurance in anything and everything aside from the Word of God. That I know my loved one is still with me because God gave a beautiful rainbow on my way home. I've heard that. I know that my loved one is in a better place because I saw this particular bird at my bird feeder. I've also heard that. And coming back to this one simple truth... That there is a hell that is worse than you or I have ever experienced. And a heaven that is greater than you or I ever thought possible. And at the same time, even though you and I have deserved nothing but hell and worse, the incomprehensible truth that we treasure, and that God repeats over and over in a dozen different ways, This beautiful truth is that he gave his son for you and for me. He gave his son to carry your sin in mind. And not just like the mistakes and the missteps and the, whoops, I did that again. But sin in all of its ugliness. And that this Jesus paid the full price of of death. So that you and I would have life forever with him in heaven. That's what he kind of describes in um, verse 29. People will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. 
that God wants to demonstrate his, his love and his gospel truth to such an extent that he, he tries to come up with a dozen different ways to describe this restored relationship. Not only that, you know, previously, don't touch the mountain because God is there. God is giving his commandments. But now, Jesus not only invites you into his home and not to, you know, not to do the cleaning in his home, but he himself is host who invites you to come to feast at his table forever. That the image we have of this heaven that he promises is an image of, of unending joy, of a worship service that goes on forever, of all of us experiencing God's holiness face to face, but with no terror and no fear and no worry. And it's the people who, who know that truth, and whether we think of it in those terms or not, it's the people who know that truth that Jesus brings in the difficult part of today's gospel reading. When he says, um, the master of the house, verse 25 and following, the master of the house gets up and shuts the door. You begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open the door. And he says, I don't know you where, or where you come from. And those outside begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will repeat, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me. That the truth, the truth that is yours and mine, and the truth that we confess is something so beyond what our human minds want to believe that this truth is something that our human hearts want to reject. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen. That the truth of, of hell and us deserving it, and heaven and Jesus winning it, that that truth is so contrary to everything that we might expect and everything that we might think, that if we were left to our own devices and distanced from the voice of Jesus, that it wouldn't take long for everything and anything to separate us from his word. It doesn't take much. And you probably know that. Having been a pastor now for 11 years, I, I've seen it. And it worries me. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. If you want to put that into our um, Lutheran terminology. Lord, I, I was there at church you know, for a while, a good portion of my life. I studied the catechism. I went through confirmation class with pastor. I attended a Lutheran grade school. Why is the door shut? Lord, I, I stood before the altar at one of your congregations and I promised to be faithful, and I promised to be regular in my use of word and sacrament, and, and I meant it. I was confirmed in the faith, yeah, maybe as an adult. Why is the door shut? And there's two major things that we as a congregation, that we who know exactly what Jesus talks about when he talks about heaven and hell, when he talks about the reality of, of a blessing that goes beyond anything you have ever experienced, 
When he talks about standing in God's presence, in all of his holiness, and not just standing there, but being invited to dine with God himself in the eternal wedding feast of heaven, that the two major things that we need to talk about um, are number one is, is a number, and then number two is an effort. And the first number to, to talk about is 38 it's actually a percentage, so 38%. A few years ago, the Missouri Synod had done a study um, comparing, comparing children who went to a public school, a publicly funded school, versus those who had attended a Lutheran grade school. And followed them over time um, to, to learn about you know, retention. Who, who remained in the faith out of those two groups? Just trying to compare and see what's the value or what's the, how can we help to make sure that our children stay in this faith? 38% of those who attended a Lutheran grade school remained in the faith 20 years later when they were adults. The number for the, those who had attended a public school was 32%. Which I, I don't know a whole lot about statistics. I, I know people who, who do. <laughs> I know people who enjoy math a lot more than I do, including my son. But those two numbers, 32% of the publicly educated group and 38% of those who went to a parochial grade school, they're very close to being identical and within a margin of error. That's the first part. Hold on to that one. 38%. The other one is the effort. That in the space of less than a year, in the space of about 10 months, um, Resurrection has gone from a group of about 150 to a little over 300 on the books. 300 people total. And we have an obligation to all of them. And one of the things that we will be working on and that I am humbly requesting your assistance with is contacting the roughly 200 household, well, I don't know an exact number offhand, contacting the people who have not been here. And chances are, you know, you went to church or have known these people, and I can give you a script with what to say and how to, how to react. And all it takes is to call them up and say, you know what, we, we share. We share a Savior. We share a truth. That even if and no matter what your experience was in the past with the church, I don't want you to miss out on the blessings that Jesus has prepared for you and won for you. I don't want, I don't want anybody and especially those under our congregational care, but anybody, to get caught up so much by any and every concern in this world that they'll be left at the door. Lord, I was confirmed, I was catechized, I went to the Lutheran grade school. Why is the door shut? Because his promise is for all. His promise is that he continues to promise to build a church through these words. He continues to promise to use even your Christian witness. He continues to promise that the truth that you treasure is something that he wants more to treasure. And it's so great and so wonderful that he goes beyond to try to describe what this is like. 
We've got camels and mules and wagons and Toyota Camrys coming from across the world to, to Jerusalem. That's the image that he uses. And the spiritual reality is of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language gathering together and being incorporated into the body of Christ. That the image that he uses is of people who rejoice at the wedding feast of the Lamb now. And that is the simple foretaste of the forever feast that goes on in heaven. That even though, even though we confess at the beginning of each service that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and I deserve only your wrath and punishment both now and for eternity, but because of your grace to me in Jesus Christ, heaven is open, and my sin is forgiven, and righteousness has been given. Far be it from anyone to, to take that beautiful truth lightly. To say, here is what your God has given to you. That he was thinking about you even before, even before he said, let there be light. And that he was thinking about you also when he said, it is finished. And he was thinking about you when he said, don't be afraid. <laughs> he was thinking about you when he said that he will return. That these are all promises of our God who wants, who wants you to know and to treasure to the same degree the exact amount. Um, he wants you to treasure Him the same way He has treasured you. And the way He describes it up there in the book of Hebrews. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Or down in our gospel reading today, people will come from the east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And in that part there, that last verse, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. What he's really saying is that his word works at every stage of life. I think that's the most pertinent application. His word works at every stage of life. Whether um, you're like our oldest member who turns 101 in November. Um, our oldest member who was baptized shortly after she was born and has remained, has been kept in the faith until now. Or whether you're somebody else who maybe will be brought to faith on their deathbed. That God doesn't work according to our expectations of what somebody deserves. He works according to his reality of what he has given. And that reality is that his word works at every point in a person's life. And the results are completely dependent upon him. And that's something to rejoice in. Because that's a treasure that we hold together. That's an opportunity that we have together. To, yes, continue to catechize our children together. And to continue to um, reach out to those who have fallen away or strayed away from the faith. Not for the purpose of simply checking a box and making sure that we've done our due diligence. But for the purpose of opening a conversation and saying, Dear friend, I missed you. Come back to the feast. Because this Jesus... This Jesus who has saved you from an eternity in hell is a Jesus who wants to rejoice with you today at his table. At his table. Where he gives again exactly what he has promised in his word. Forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. 
that the Israelites sat there trembling at the foot of Mount Sinai. They couldn't even touch the mountain. And today, Jesus comes to each communicant individually and personally, saying, take me. This is my body. This is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. This is for you. And not only that, but that that's just the foretaste of the feast that he has promised. Amen. Amen.